Welcome to our podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Matt Calkins, a family medicine resident at Wake Forest and a University of Florida alumnus. With a passion for health and performance, Matt is pursuing SMHP accreditation and obesity medicine certification. Drawing from his experience in weightlifting, hiking, he focuses on making changes accessible to patients and improving communication. As the chair of the Resources Committee for the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners, he helps integrate resources into educational programs and practices. Join us for this conversation as we discuss health, performance, um, the medical industry, and Matt's inspiring journey. Good morning, Matt. Morning, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And, um, you know, we've been talking for a few weeks here. We finally got this lined out and I had some tornadoes in Little Rock been dealing with over the last few weeks, but I'm glad we had the time to sit down and talk about this because I'm really intrigued about your unique background, especially in your experiences in weightlifting and long distance hiking and, and recreational you know, type things. But can you share how your journey led you on the path to become a family medicine resident and how those experiences um, affected and shaped your approach to medicine? Yeah. Uh, I think my journey to uh, helping people with their metabolic health starts uh, just with high school. Uh, I did Florida. I went to high school there. Uh, weightlifting is a sport. So I uh, weightlifting and realized just the overall health benefits of pretty early. My diet was not up to the same par as my exercise was. I went to uh, the University of Florida for undergrad as well, where I was a physics major. Uh, did not have any interest in medicine when I went in. Probably the last year, this was circa 2013 at that point, I became more interested in metabolic health. And that was through podcasts like Low Carb MD and Peter Atia's podcast, uh, Peter Atia's podcast as well. Yeah. And so I made the transition to uh, medical school, took all my prereqs, and the uh, I continued on through med school, uh, but I ultimately went into emergency medicine uh, and realized that it wasn't perfect fit for me. And I saw Laura, my wife, Dr. Laura Buchanan was a family medicine resident at that time. So I saw that she was improving people's metabolic health. She was getting people off of their insulin. And I ultimately made the switch to, uh, to family medicine. And that's where I am now. So she is now an attending. I am a third year resident. The way residency works is you have four years of med school, and then you have a minimum of three years. It can go all the way out to like something crazy, seven years for neurosurgery. Uh, so in three months, I'll be essentially a full-fledged attending. And my plan then is to do primary care in, uh, in the town I'm in, but also work with Dr. Tro Kalajian and my wife. Uh, with, they're basically telehealth, metabolic medicine licensed in 48 states and uh, continue on the good work of trying to help people improve their metabolic health. And I bet that, that that's helped you uh, finding a partner that is also in the same field and, and y'all are interested in the same things. I think that's, that's, that's really fascinating. You know, and yeah. you were telling me about uh, something with how y'all have approached metabolic health and some issues you ran into with uh, ordering insulin levels for patients. Could, could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. So uh, I think it's really important for people to... Uh, when they when they go first into a space, they kind of pave the way for people who come afterwards. So it's really hard at first. And, you know, podcasts are an example of that. I would never have gotten interested in this space if it wasn't for uh, basically learning outside of medical school uh, into everything that this has to offer. So Laura, when she was an intern, which is a first year family medicine resident, uh, she ordered 
fasting insulins on patients. Uh, also had calcium scans done. And that is not really something that is, uh, a lot of the attendings who you precept with are not totally familiar with that kind of stuff. Because one of my least favorite phrases in medicine is when an attending asks you, well, how is that going to change management? And they, how is that lab going to change? And what they really mean is what medicine are you going to start if that lab's abnormal? In reality, one of the most precious things, one of the most expensive things we have in medicine is the time we have with our patients. So when we get the fasting insulin level, it's five, we can be relatively reassured that this patient is most likely insulin sensitive. Even if they had excess weight, they're most likely a metabolically healthy, overweight individual. Mm -hmm. But if their insulin, fasting insulin level is 50, that's a patient I'm actually really worried about. And no, I'm not going to start performing, but I am going to bring them back to clinic more quickly. And I'm going to see them have cl closer follow-up time, maybe even call them on the weekends, uh, add them into my schedule to try to continue to improve the metabolic health. Uh, so Laura basically had to talk to every single attending that she precepted with about why she ordered this lab. And then when I came in a year later, I basically got zero pushback. So you, know, you mentioned the CAC scan. Is that typical to, to order with these things? Is, is what is CAC? Is that the, the scan you were talking about? The yeah. So calcium. yeah, what, what that calcium score is that, does that kind of correlate with insulin insensitivity? I would say uh, insulin resistance is one of the major risk factors for uh, having atherosclerosis in general. Uh, the current recommendations are in terms of when the AHA recommends to get a calcium scan, which I, it's, it's only a recommendation and guidelines or expert opinions. I do order some calcium scans outside of the recommendations. We can talk about when, uh, but they basically recommend getting the lipid profiles until their 10 year ASCVD risk is uh, five to 7.5%. They're like a gray area there, but when your 10 year risk of a heart attack is between 7.5 and 20%, uh, there's a risk benefit discussion. We're going to talk about risk benefit discussions in, in uh, medicine, I bet later in the podcast. Uh, but there's a risk-benefit discussion on starting a stack. And what you can do in lieu of that to help with that decision-making is getting a calcium scan. So that is actually a lot of people who experts recommend considering getting a calcium scan on. Uh, certainly, I like to fully evaluate all of my patients' uh, risk of heart disease because that is the number one killer in this country when you get above a, the age of 55. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do order a lot of calcium scans. I'll also order calcium scans on patients that have a very significant family history of heart disease. Now, those 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 CAC scans do they um, do they detect soft plaque, and is that a problem if they don't? And do those scans are we're kind of getting into the weeds here a little bit? Sorry, um, but do those scans do they detect early? Is it early detection that they can pick up on, or is it sort of late stage? By that point, are you too far gone? You know, with with that kind of buildup. So it's that's also an excellent question, and they do not detect detect soft plaques. I think you can illustrate uh, their benefit uh, in example uh, specifically from Peter. He was thirty five years old, I believe, when he had a calcium score of six, and oh. being. Being that young with any calcium is actually, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, the, he immediately went on, I believe, a statin and a PCSK9. His APOB goal, I think, is, or his LDLC goal is less than 40 milligrams per deciliter. 
and he recently said that he's been getting calcium scans essentially every probably three to five years is how quickly the calcium can change. And it's still six. So mm. there's do not have great data about arresting. I believe we don't have great data about arresting the progression of calcium scans of the calcium scores. Uh, in terms of the soft plaque, which is the more vulnerable plaque, you would have to either, you'd basically have to get a, a coronary angiogram or a coronary, uh, a CACT uh, mm. to basically you would use dye to inject uh, the dye into the uh, artery of the uh, coronary arteries. And then you can see if there's any stenosis that way through, okay. a calc through, the, through the CT scan itself. That has a little bit more risk. It's a little bit more uh, radiation and the IV contrast uh, has risks as well. For instance, I'm a, I have an anaphylactic reaction to IV contrast. And so not as, not as simple and as safe as getting a calcium scan on all of the patients. And it's a little bit more research driven now, nowadays. So did you discover that, that anaphylaxis, was that, was that an uncomfortable experience? Yeah, I, they basically pushed the IV uh, contrast and I felt my face getting slightly itchy and then I just could not stop coughing and they said, oh, okay. And they just, they gave me the shot of epinephrine and I was fine, but, uh, huh. was, it's not a pleasant experience. Thankfully, wherever you go, if you, if you have to get a contrasted scan, all of these technicians are basically taught how to recognize it and give the right medicine and then make sure you're you're safe so okay not not that big of a deal but now i know going forward yep. so i'm really interested in um considering your experience with patients that have been hospitalized due to complications in metabolic disease and you're pursuing the um the um, the obesity medicine uh, what do you think should change in medical education to to better address metabolic health and nutrition because these, you know, I'll see a lot of people on Twitter or physicians, you know, talking about education for patients or whatever, but really there's, there's not, I feel like a top down, you know, from the education system down, there could be change instituted. What do you see room for improvement in that regard? I think the amount of nutrition that we're taught is not in concordance with the burden of the non-communicable diseases nutrition causes. And those are things like type two diabetes. Those are obesity, uh, hypertension, PCOS, heart disease. Oh yeah. All of these things have some underlying basis in nutrition. There is, uh, the needle is moving. Uh, we had a two week intensive, uh, course that everybody took when we were in med school and it was essentially eight hours, a day, five days a week for two weeks, all about nutrition. Uh, I think that there's, uh, I think that there can be more discussion and also more hope and for medical students. It can be more, made more interesting. We were taught diabetes was essentially a chronic and progressive disease, and nobody's going to really want to learn nutrition. All you're going to do is eventually put somebody on, somebody on insulin, yeah. and then you're just going to have to carb count their insulin dose, right? Yeah. When you show that there are there are people going into remission with their type two diabetes. When you show that obesity, people can put their obesity into remission uh, and they can have a normal weight and they can improve their osteoarthritis and all of these other diseases. Uh, that is actually a huge motivating factor to learn how and why. Uh, you really have to motivate medical students nowadays and residents and even physicians in what is the possibility of people improving their metabolic health and how are we going to do that through nutrition? 
So, you know, I mentioned top down change in terms of how can we turn the tide, but it's not just, it's not just from the top down. It's, you know, it, it, there's a, there's a, there's a, a lot of factors that go into it. There's, you know, the, the food corporations and, and behavioral economics and how all of these, I posted a photo last week of the entrance to my Kroger store. And before you even enter the grocery store, it's lined with soda and chips. Like it, they just shoved it all in there with the carts and everything. Just so that's the first thing you see as soon as you get in. So I guess along those lines, interview, how does um, this affect healthcare and what steps can we take to break those cycles? Yeah, I see this problem. I see this as a three, three body problem. So you have the food industry on one hand, in the middle, you kind of have the healthcare industry, uh, which is us, the physician, the people in the clinic. And then you have the ph pharmaceutical companies on the other hand. So first, the food companies are not interested in your health. They're interested in improving their bottom line and creating value for shareholders. And yep. we have a lot of food in our food supply that hasn't really been, you know, edible or people have not been eating except for the past 50 to 60 years. It's probably the biggest experiment that we've ever done, live experiment uh, ever before. These foods are ultra hedonic, and that is what is one of the factors that predisposes people to metabolic illness, which is when the medical industry comes into focus. So when we have people coming in to our clinic, we have essentially about 10 to 15 minutes to discuss all of this with them. And typically that's about every one to three months. So we have 15 minutes to essentially undo about three months prior work of all of the advertisements, all of the ultra hedonic eating and all of the really excessive advertising uh, value that the food companies have put out there. And that's a ton of inertia to try to overcome in a 15 minute visit and then have that inertia kind of still be minimal throughout the next three months until you see the picture. Yeah, it, you uh, have to find find momentum there. I heard uh, an, an interesting idea of, of how um, they can, how physicians can get that information more to, you know, spend more time with those patients is, is by pulling them into like groups and saying, okay, on this day, I'm going to do diabetic education for these 20 people or whatever. I thought that was an interesting idea. I don't think anybody in my area really does that. So we actually, uh, my wife and I, Laura, we did a quality improvement project on group medical visits. So that's what you were discussing. And there is a lot of great data about group medical visits, uh, because you allow the patients to have agency. You empower the patients to discuss their concerns and then other patients can learn from each other. Uh, it's not just one physician rambling on in a, in a basically a 15 minute visit saying you got to lower your, your A1C and we're going to do it through metformin or something like that. So we used continuous glucose monitors and we had two different uh, sessions that ran kind of serially and we had uh, a visit every two weeks. And we reviewed everyone's CGMs and we taught them what, how to eat low carb and how to react to what their CGM was doing. And we improved the A1C by about a full percentage point for about the 14 people that were in this study. Uh, the patients loved it. They loved the CGMs. They loved the fact that they could ask questions about, well, if I can't have oatmeal for breakfast. What am I going to have? And then somebody else answers this or your low carb food of choice. Uh, so yeah, you basically place the power back in the patient's hands and you basically multiply the, the power of the physician in that respect. Yeah. So you did some work with Dr. Westman. We, we start talking about keto medicine and, and those types of things. Can you maybe just, uh, do a brief background on who Dr. Westman 
is and what your perspective and experience and how that was shaped by your time at, at, at Duke. Yeah. So I, uh, I truly stand on the shoulders of giants, um, in what I do now. And I think Dr. Westman is the, the father of the modern day low carb ketogenic diet movement. So his story kind of briefly, because it's so, it shows what needs to happen now to continue to progress the field is that, uh, I think it was the late 1990s. He was working at the Durham VA and two patients came to him. They lost like 150 pounds. And he asked how they did it. And they said this thing called the Atkins diet. And so Dr. Westman is very uh, evidence-based guy. He looked at the data. There was no data out there at the time. So he called up Atkins and he went up to New York and he said, Atkins, uh, well, where's the data? Show me the data. And Atkins says, I don't have any data, but you can look through my charts. And so Westman spent a lot of time up there looking through, like going through his filing cabinets. And he was essentially convinced from that. And then he published that first paper in 2004, that RCT on about 30 patients, low fat versus low carb and low, low carb one. And then the rest is history. He's since published numerous papers and he's given numerous talks at these low carb conferences. One of the conferences are almost every conference. He says, if you want to see more, just let me know and come and work with me, Duke. And we took him up on that offer, both Laura and myself. Laura went out there and worked with him for a week the year before I did. And then I worked with them for a week and it was incredible. We saw about, uh, I think it was 30, she had with Laura, actually, I, she took better notes than I did, but when she went, uh, she saw about 35 patients there, there was about, uh, I want to get these numbers right yeah, because it's, it's, uh, let me see here, 35 patients, 1300 pounds of weight loss between them, 150 inches off the waist. And there was uh, the average age of 34 to 78 years old, stopping 13 medications. And this goes back to what I was talking about. Where is that in med school? That, that is the most exciting thing that I've heard in medicine ever. And it is not relayed. It is, it is, instead, the med students are caught, taught that it's a, it's a chronic progressive disease, that obesity and diabetes, somebody's going to have it forever. And the natural history of diabetes is eventually foot amputations and dialysis. Uh, that is not true. We have the means and the education to put these diseases into remission. And we need to be telling medical students that we need to be boosting morale and we need to be, uh, motivating. So what obstacles are there in terms of a family physician seeing someone come in and let, let's say that they are, they are overweight, they are metabolically unhealthy as determined by maybe an, an A1C, but it's, it's not quite diabetic yet. Is there an, a block somewhere in the coding, medical coding, in terms of what you can do for that patient with diet nutrition? Can you spend the time do, you know, talking about a ketogenic or a carnivorous diet? Or is there a limitation and you need to wait for that patient to become diabetic? Yeah, there are, uh, it's the incentives, I think, as you were alluding to, what are the incentives for talking about diet and exercise instead of medications for metabolic diseases? And the incentives are horribly at this moment misaligned. So the way billing works in medicine at the moment is most practices are fee for service, meaning you generate these things called, uh, RVUs, which is, uh, I think it's revenue value units, or it may be, uh, yeah, I think it's revenue value units. And all it is, is trying to 
normalize what one unit of work is for a physician. So when you see a patient, the more complex they are, uh, the higher the RVUs. And when you, there's basically really only two levels of complexity for outpatient medicine. And that's a level three visit and a level four visit. And the more level four visits you can do in a shorter period of time, the more money, the more RVUs you're going to generate. Mm -hmm. um, it obviously takes time to talk about low carb ketogenic diets, to talk about lifestyle changes. Whereas if you have a 10 minute visit, it is a lot easier to go over the side effects of the other medicines and then screen for causes to put somebody on a new medication. And when you start a new medication, that increases the complexity up to a level four, especially if they have two chronic problems. Two chronic problems, honestly, nowadays, mm. if somebody has an overweight BMI, that's one, and then pick your, you can pick your uh, poison for the rest. It could be metabolic syndrome. It could be hypertension. It could be hyperlipidemia. Did, uh, did I just hear you say that there is incentive to put patients on new medications? If you're, so medication adjustments or yeah. medication management increases your medical decision-making from a level three visit to a level four visit. Yeah. I don't know. It's currently a little bit ambiguous. Uh, if you can say, I considered starting this patient on metformin, but I did not. Uh, but certainly the, it is unreproachable to put somebody, let's say on metformin, and then that will be a level four visit. That is true medication management. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I, I spend a lot more time with people on diet and lifestyle. Uh, and sometimes it bleeds into the next appointment. So in a residency clinic, not how I necessarily want to practice medicine long-term. A residency clinic is the old paradigm of medicine. I have 15-minute appointments, and honestly, by the time the patient gets room, it's more like 10 to 7 minutes. But I still take, I triage my time, and I try to figure out who needs, what is the optimum way to discuss lifestyle changes with this patient like as 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 quickly but efficiently as possible and then probably following up with them as soon as i can maybe two to four weeks right um it's hard and if you're certainly seeing 30 patients a day in 10 minute visits um that's what most that's what most physicians do and that's why i think we have a lot of the issues we have in the country just to pivot real quick, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you probably have a lot going on this morning, but I wanted to ask you because I'm, I'm running, I guess, an experiment on myself. I haven't even done my blood work yet, but I've been doing a carnivorous diet since, since December. And I'm just curious what your maybe experience with that is and maybe what I should be maybe looking out for in terms of biomarkers or long-term effects. Yeah. I personally have not had any patients on, uh, the carnivore diet yet. It, uh, it's certainly more of a niche diet. I do know a lot about it though. I know Dr. Uh, Rob Silas, who is on the board of the ASMHP. Uh, mm -hmm. He has had a lot of lectures for uh, low carb Boca and low carb San Diego, where he discusses a lot of the, the data on his carnivore patients. Yeah. Uh, I'll say if a patient comes to me with a particular diet, I had a patient actually Monday who wants to lose weight and I basically handed out the page, uh, Eric Westman's page four uh, page tour, which is a ketogenic less than 20 grams of carbs a day diet, basically unlimited meat, unlimited eggs. And she was essentially a uh, ovo vegetarian. And mm. so I worked with her to, on that diet to basically fit the diet into how she wants to eat. Uh, that I would do the same thing if somebody came to me and they were carnivore. It's, 
It's always about talking about the risks and benefits. I think having anything that is the first thing we need for carnivore diets, like I said earlier, are case control or case series studies where we have people on this diet prove certain metrics and then maybe certain metrics get worse. And I think the most concerning one would be APOB or LDLC. Uh, and honestly, that is always just ongoing conversation between you and the physician. We can do aggressive risk stratification with calcium scores. Uh, we can there, you can repeat those if you want to every about three to five years, that data st still is a little bit, uh, a little bit hazy, but that's, what looks like what the, the data is saying. And just really just following the lab work. If you're feeling great and everything else is improving. And if you put your obesity into remission, if you put your type two diabetes into remission, if your testosterone is uh, up, and you're feeling great, then let's just continue to monitor things as we just discuss the benefits you're getting and the risks that might come with a, a slightly more elevated APOB. I wanted yeah. to hit on a few different things. Uh, we've been following the satiety per calorie kind of argument. You know, I, I think that any kind of tool, there's, there's a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different minds, you know, in terms of w the willingness of people to approach, you know, behavior modification in terms of different nutritional paths and, and um, ways of eating. So what role do you see something like satiety per calorie playing in is there a certain type of patient where a tool like this could benefit and then possibly where is there room for improvement yeah i don't think it's ever a bad idea to introduce new ideas into the scientific arena i love innovation uh disruption and certainly i think spc kind of fits that paradigm uh the idea of having a single score for telling patients, basically ranking things and telling patients how healthy something is, is kind of the the uh, the ideal, right? And we've been there before with kind of Weight Watchers. You mm -hmm. had a point, had a certain amount of points you could eat a day. Mm -hmm. SPC definitely goes above and beyond Weight Watchers. Uh, and it in includes a lot of very, very interesting, promising ideas into it. I ultimately side with what uh, Nick Norwich says, which is I really do worry about putting something that is still in an incredible amount of development in a patient forward setting without even a single trial. And I would settle for a case control series or even a case series. Patients following SPC diet, they improve their SPC from a 30 to a 70, and this is their outcomes. We unfortunately don't even have that. And the worry would be there's just so many incidental effects when you start messing around, when you start changing around your nutrition that, uh, for instance, just recently they did change this, but popcorn with yeast was an 80 out of 100 on their scale. So yeah. I, do, I do not think that you can add that to a, a meal that has a score of 40 and then take the average of that to 60 and be healthy. Yeah, whenever I, I had brought up that same point, I think yesterday in a comment, Dr. Uh, Doctor E had, had mentioned that that's not how it works. And I'm sure there is some missing in my understanding of how exactly that program works. But it, it is those little, those things that you can kind of point at that don't really seem to make a lot of sense in terms of what would be metabolically healthy. Like, um, like they have Diet Coke listed as a 100. And that just, I don't know why that irks me so bad, but it just absolutely does. Because um, like you said, like if you're... It, it, people see 100 and it being in green, 
And and they're the way people's minds works. They've been through the school system. A 100 in green means an A plus in yeah. the way their minds work. I do admire maybe uh, using a kind of a 21st century approach to crowdsourcing, you know, the the ways of working through a new type of program or a tool like this. So maybe he's getting to the end result quicker with all of this feedback. It does feel a little uh, strenuous and and um confusing as we're working through it but it's interesting to talk about it is it is i think the other thing that i would worry about and this is this this is true with any diet uh, there are it has a pretty big um it has a pretty big blind spot that could be gamed by the food corporations so yeah. you can imagine you're just taking everything if truly you wanted to be at 50 and just like uh Ted Naiman said yesterday in the podcast, or their discussion that he could make an awful, the worst low carb diet you've ever seen, but you can do the same for SPC. It doesn't, the, to think that SPC is going to solve everything, which I think they kind of allude to, they want it to be this cohesive model. I could make something that has an SPC of 50 and just be absolutely awful for human health. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, with the, the terms of, uh, the food industry, and so at, at what point does a tool like SBC or Weight Watchers become so popular that these, you know, these, these food companies that some of which are owned by tobacco companies, which I made a video on a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. And, you know, at what, at what point are they knocking down their door to try to get, you know, their label on things, right? Then we're going to have, you know, we're going to have a uh, dye doctor slapped on the Diet Coke, which is a 100 or whatever, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, but um, it's interesting to see. I'm eager to see how it kind of works its way out. Um, I think that it's great that there are multiple tools for things, you know, for people to use. And hopefully, you know, um, people will build off of this and create, you know, I even mentioned in a comment, I didn't get, I didn't get a response back from it, but it'd be cool if they just build this tool out and then open source it so that physicians can like grab it and then tweak it how they want, you know, based on their own you know, education and, and understanding of metabolic health, which I think might be interesting, but we'll see. Exactly. Exactly. Let's keep innovating. Yeah. So, um, Doc, that's all I had for you. I'm really uh, thankful that you would take a, you know, a few moments to, to speak with me this morning you know, I'm, um, and share this with everybody. Uh, is there anything else you'd want to share before leaving? Uh, I think just keep focusing on metabolic health. If you're interested in improving your health, changing your nutrition and your lifestyle, exercising if you can, uh, is always optimal and just keep, keep reading. That's, that's great, Doc. Dr. Matt Calkins, um, he can find his link down below in the description uh, to his Twitter and his website and, and various other things. Thank you, Doc. You're welcome, James. Have a great one.